how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Numbers Part 2. See, the wilderness is a testing ground. That's why Jesus was taken into the wilderness for six weeks, tested. And it is a real test under very hard conditions. You're not in the promised land yet, you're out of Egypt, but uh, you're right in between. It's like uh, an engagement is a testing time. You're in between being free and being married. And it's a testing time because it's neither one thing nor the other. And in the same way, the wilderness is a real testing time. And alas, Israel did not pass the test. Bear in mind that after Sinai, let's go back to the, the map. After Sinai, they are in a different relationship to God than they were here. They commit the same sins after Sinai as they did before. The difference is that now there are sanctions, there are punishments attached to those sins because after Sinai they are in a covenant relationship. They're now married to God. Here they were courting if you like, but now they're, they're married. So that uh, now God has to deal more severely with them than he did before Sinai because they have taken upon themselves a promise to do what he tells them and therefore they will be blessed if they're obedient, they will be cursed if they're not. They know that and God told them from now on, I will bless you when you do right but I'll curse you when you do wrong. Will you accept those two conditions? And they said, we will and we'll do what's right. But it's one thing to say that they'll do what's right, it's another thing to keep such promises. So God has actually bound himself to them in a double way and he must now either bless them or curse them in a way that he didn't have to before. He's under obligation to his promises and to his oath. So we can see now both the purpose and the limitation of the law God gave them. The purpose is so that they can see what's right. The limitation is that they can't do it and the law can't help them to do it. The law doesn't help you to live right. It tells you what is living right and what's wrong but it can't help you. The law is helpless to do that. And that is why the law given on the Pentecost day was inadequate and needed later the Spirit to be given on that same day because without supernatural help we'll never be able to keep the law. But they thought they could and they promised that they would. Now we're going to look first at the leaders of the nation and see how they failed. The leaders of the nation all came from one family, two brothers and a sister. Interesting that God just used the one family to lead this new people, this new nation, Moses, Aaron and Miriam, two brothers and a sister. And we're told their good points and their strengths of character. Moses actually writes about himself and says Moses was the meekest man of all the men on earth. It's quite a thing to be able to say to yourself. You just try telling other people that you are the humblest person <laughs> in your office or factory. Actually Moses got away with it because he was and Jesus got away with it as well. He said, learn of me for I am meek and humble. Now most of us couldn't even say that 
without being ribbed about it, but Moses could and Jesus could. He was a meek man. By that it means he never tried to defend himself. One of the loveliest things about Moses is that when he was criticised or when he was badly treated, when he was betrayed, he never tried to defend himself. He let the Lord defend him. There's a lesson. That's what meekness is. It's not weakness, but it's not trying to defend yourself. He was both a prophet and a priest and, in a sense, a king. He combined all three functions, though he isn't called those three things. He certainly was a prophet and he is called that and he brought many words from the Lord. But when he prayed for the people, he was acting as a priest and when he led them, he certainly acted as a king in battle. But he wasn't called a king. But I believe he combined all three functions. Aaron only combined two. Aaron was both a prophet to Moses and a priest and the Aaronic priesthood became the heart of the worship and ritual of the ancient people of God. Miriam was a prophetess. So we have Moses, prophet, priest and king, Aaron, prophet and priest, and Miriam, prophetess. Interesting, the sharing out of the gifts. And notice that prophecy is a ministry for women as well as for men, in the New Testament as well as the Old, Philip's four daughters. And her particular prophet prophetic gift was expressed in song. There is a very direct link between prophecy and music. Interesting that when David chose choir masters, he always chose a prophet to be a choir master, or what he called a seer, somebody who could see what God was doing. And uh, there is a close link. Ezekiel used to say, play me some music and I'll prophesy for you. And I can understand that. There's something about music, the right kind of music, that releases the prophetic spirit. And that was true of Miriam. Now, how did they all go wrong? Well, let's do it in reverse order. Miriam went wrong because she was jealous. She desired honour for herself. And that was also going to be the end of her brother Aaron too. Both Miriam and Aaron were jealous of Moses. Because it's not easy when you're in the same family and your own brother has a more important position than you do. But uh, they had important positions. They were among the leaders, but uh, they got jealous. And Miriam was punished with leprosy. That may not be what later came to be called Hansen's disease. It could have been psoriasis or any skin disease, but certainly an incurable disease. And she had that for seven days until she repented of it. But she actually died at Kadesh. She got no further than that. And she died there. So Miriam drops out of the picture. The second person to drop out of the leadership picture is Aaron. And once again his problem was jealousy, desire for honour. In fact, he and Miriam got together to criticise Moses. And of course, jealousy will always find an excuse or an apparent reason for being awkward and the reason they both found was that Moses married someone they didn't approve of. He married a Cushite woman who'd come out of Egypt with them who was not even a Hebrew. And uh, God didn't criticise him for doing that, but Miriam and Aaron did. It was simply an occasion. They were against Moses anyway and this gave them a good excuse to criticise him and say he shouldn't have done that. A leader shouldn't, should set an example by marrying a Hebrew. 
Well, Aaron too died. He died at Mount Hor, which is just a little further than Kadesh. So very quickly after they expressed this jealousy and this desire for honour themselves, they both died. Aaron was over a hundred when he died, which left Moses. Alas, Moses himself failed. He got very impatient with the people. Now who could blame him? <laughs> in the New Testament it says he put up with the people for 40 years in the wilderness and he did. I mean, what a job. Two million people always grumbling and complaining and, and having arguments that needed to be settled. He would bang their heads together. He got fed up with the people and therefore impatient with them and a leader who is impatient with his followers is likely to get into trouble. But the time came when he made a big mistake. He had already provided water for them by striking the rock with his rod and the limestone of the Sinai Desert has this peculiar property of holding reservoirs of water within itself. There are huge reserves of water in the Sinai Desert but they're usually surrounded by rock and contained in the rock. Moses released those reservoirs of water for them just with his rod touching the rock. But there came a second time when they were short of water and God told Moses, Moses this time don't strike the rock, just speak to it. A word will release the water in the rock, just speak to it. But Moses was so impatient with the people that he didn't listen to God carefully. And he said to the people, oh if you want water and he struck the rock twice. And God said, why didn't you do it the way I told you? For this Moses, you will not see the promised land. Now it seems a pretty tough punishment, doesn't it? But it was important because if the leader doesn't listen carefully to God and do it the way God wants, think of what's going to happen to the people. And it was purely because he was angry with the people and impatient with them that he lost his temper and he didn't hear what God said. And yet for that Moses was told, you won't see the promised land. Well you will see it but you won't enter it. Well now isn't the Bible honest? Here are the three leaders of the people, two brothers and a sister and the Bible tells you they all failed in the book of Numbers. And we're to learn from this, leaders are to learn from this. Big responsibility to lead God's people, do it right and do it God's way. There were individuals who let God down through the book of Numbers. The most outstanding was a man called Korah, K-O-R-A-H. And in chapters 16 and 17 we find Korah led a rebellion. He was angry that priesthood should be exclusively the right of Aaron and his family. Why shouldn't the rest of us be priests? Why has it to be Aaron? And he questioned Aaron's priesthood. Now it's very interesting that as soon as he began to, others began to. It's amazing how one malcontent somehow instinctively finds the others. Have you ever noticed that? It happens in churches, we've got to say it, happens in the new people of God. One malcontent can soon gather around them, a number of others. They almost instinctively know who to go and share their complaint with. And so very soon they had 250 
gathered around them, all challenging the authority of Moses and the priesthood of Aaron. Exclusive rights. We didn't elect you. We didn't appoint you. But God had done. So they set themselves against the leaders. In other words, they're saying, they did say, Moses and Aaron are self-appointed leaders. They've chosen this job for themselves. They couldn't believe that God had chosen them. And in any case, they said they failed to bring us into the promised land. That's a nasty dig, isn't it? They failed to get us into the promised land and they're monopolizing the functions of priesthood. So Moses said, right, we're going to test this. And the test is, who did God choose for these positions? He said, now, Korah and the men with you, get hold of a twig from a scrub bush in the, in the desert. And Aaron, you get hold of one. And they laid these twigs in the holy place before the Lord all night. And in the morning, one of the sticks had blossomed and one had flowers on it. The others were dead and it was Aaron's rod that budded. From then on, they actually put Aaron's rod inside the Ark of the Covenant and it was kept inside there. It was God's proof that Aaron was his choice. He was not self-appointed. If you read the Psalms, you find that many of them are written by the sons of Korah. You ever notice that? This man's family didn't follow him and his children became singers in the temple later. His children were saved, but he wasn't. Korah is mentioned in the book of Jude in the New Testament as a warning to Christians. Don't question God's appointments and don't be jealous. But what about the people as a whole? The people as a whole also failed. I've spoken about the leaders who failed, some individuals who failed, but alas, I must now tell you that the book of Numbers says the whole people failed, except for two. Two out of two million, that's not very much, is it? Well, now, there were three major failures that the people made, but there was one general one that keeps cropping up, but there are three specific ones. Let's take the general one first. The general problem with the people was grumbling. That's all. So what's wrong with grumbling? A lot. <laughs> Somebody once said to me, if you grumble about the weather, you're complaining at the way God's running the universe. Did you ever think like that? <laughs> Somebody else said, you need no talent to grumble. You need no brains to grumble. You need no character to grumble. You need no self-denial to set up the grumbling business. <laughs> That's quite a statement, isn't it? It's one of the easiest things in the world to do. And we find this is the major failure of the people. They grumbled in their tents. And they thought nobody heard. But somebody did. And it says, God heard it. The Lord heard it. Because even though he was living in the tabernacle, God is also everywhere. And he heard what went on in the tents. They thought because he was in the tabernacle that he didn't know what they said when they went to their tent. What a big mistake. 
They grumbled about lack of water. They grumbled about the monotonous food. It says they grumbled that they couldn't have garlic, onions, fish, cucumbers, melons, and leeks. That's what they missed most. I remember interviewing a missionary once and saying, what do you miss most in South America? And, and she said, Marmite. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Being honest. <laughs> and they grumbled that they, I mean, all they had was, what is it? What is it? Breakfast, lunch, supper, what is it? They missed all that. They grumbled and complained. Discontent probably does more damage to the people of God than any other sin. Would you believe it? And yet it's not a sin that the church usually disciplines people over. And the Lord heard it. And the Lord said, you've put me to the test ten times. So there were at least ten occasions when that was the problem. But there were three other crises in which they took the wrong turning. The first was at the oasis of Kadesh. And this really was the worst. It's there today. It's 66 miles southwest of the Dead Sea. And it's the most beautiful oasis. Beyond it is a bit more desert and then comes the Promised Land. When they got to that last oasis in the Negev Desert, they sent 12 spies, one from each tribe, to spy out the land and to come back and tell them what it was like. They spent 40 days, some of them in the south around Hebron, but many went to the far north and they found it a very fertile land. In fact, they came back. That's a perfect illustration, a photograph taken in Israel of a land dripping with wine. <laughs> dripping with wine. Doesn't that seem to drip with wine? They came back with grapes like that from the Promised Land, but they said it's unconquerable. The beautiful land, it's all God promised, but we'll never take it. It's a land that will devour our people. We won't devour the grapes. We will be devoured. Two of the spies said, God's with us. He didn't bring us this far to leave us in the desert. We're going in with God. But the other ten said, no, it's been a huge mistake. We should never have left Egypt. The crowd actually wanted to stone Moses and Aaron for bringing them all this way. Now bear in mind, it's only been about three months since they left Egypt. But they're prepared to kill Moses and Aaron for bringing them out of slavery. It's a tragic situation. Joshua and Caleb agreed that the land was well fortified and that it was inhabited by much bigger people. That was a point they made. There are giants in there. Well, on the whole, Hebrew slaves are quite small. We know that from old bas-reliefs on which they appear. Compared with other peoples, they were not large. And the Canaanites were large. But more than that, they said they have walls around their cities. One of the loveliest things that um, Joshua and Caleb and Moses said to the people then was, God will carry us on his shoulders. I can remember as a boy being carried on my father's shoulders and when I was on his shoulders, I was the giant. I was bigger than everybody else and I could look over those high garden walls. And what Moses is saying is, God will take you in on his shoulders and you will be the giant and you'll look over those fortified walls but they didn't believe it. 
they put their faith in what man saw and what man said, and they were thoroughly democratic, they took the majority verdict. Democracy is not the way God usually works. The majority can be terribly wrong, but it was ten to two, and they, they believed the majority, and defeatism set in. Interesting to contrast what the ten said with what the two said. The ten said, we are not able to take it. The two said, God is able to take it. Very interesting. We are not able. God is able. There's no contradiction between that, but the problem is which looms uppermost in your mind. Also, the children of Israel said to Moses, the land to which you sent us, whereas Moses said, the land God gave us. Now once again, there's a complete difference in the way they talk. The way people talk reveals whether they've got faith or not. I remember once at one stage in one church at our elders' meeting, we forbade the use of the word problem and, uh, or difficulty, and we insist on using the word opportunity instead. It's amazing what difference that makes, you know, as soon as something is suggested. Well, I can see a, an opportunity there. <laughs> and it changed our thinking to change the word difficulty into the word opportunity. I'm not now advocating the power of positive thinking, but the way we talk reveals whether we've got faith and someone who always responds, oh, I can see a problem with that, or I can see a difficulty with that. Or there are some church members, they always have two reasons for not doing something new. We've never done it, or we did it and it didn't work. <laughs> and there's a kind of depression can set in. This is the grumbling, complaining again, the negative outlook, the pessimism. And Moses interceded, but God swore that not one of that generation would ever get into the land. When God swears, that's pretty terrible. Do you know what he says? He says, by God, you won't get into that land. Except he doesn't say God, he says, by myself. Because he can't swear by anything higher than himself, so he swears by himself. And there are many times when God swears by himself. He's He's virtually saying, by God, you won't get into that land now. By myself have I sworn, you will never enter my rest. Need to take God's swearing seriously. They were 40 days spying out the land. So God said, for every day you've spied out the land and come to the wrong conclusion, you spend one year in the wilderness. That's making the punishment fit the crime in God's sight. And that event becomes the hinge of the book of Numbers. It's only a third of the way through and the rest need never have been written. But the rest is all about this endless journey until every man had died. That was the first huge crisis and it was the worst. And it meant 40 years wasted time getting nowhere for an entire generation. Sad, isn't it? The next crisis came as they made their way back down into this deep valley. This is a huge crack in the earth's surface. There's the um, Sea of Galilee, then the Dead Sea, then the valley bottom rises a bit and goes down again, and the crack goes right down through the Red Sea, right down through Ethiopia, right down to the Great Rift Valley in Kenya, and right through Africa. It's the biggest crack in the world's surface, and the, the lowest part of it is the Dead Sea. You can fly below sea level there and get a pilot's license. It's about 1,600 feet below the Mediterranean. It's the 
deep, deep crack. And they went down into this valley. It's called the Aravar here, the Aravar. And they went down into it, down a steep valley which is called the Valley of the Scorpions. It's, it's known for its scorpion and snake population. And once again they grumbled and God punished them by sending snakes. And suddenly they were dying of snake bite in this valley of the scorpions. You can still go to the valley today. It's a horrible place, dry, dark, and the snakes everywhere. And they were being bitten. And only when the death toll rose to an impossible position where it seemed as if they'd all die. They cried out to God then, they confessed their grumbling sin, they repented and they begged God to stop the snakes. He didn't actually stop them. He sent a cure for the snake bite. Now it's interesting, he didn't remove the snakes but he gave them a cure and he said, Moses set up a brass, a copper actually, a copper snake on a pole on the top of the mountain looking over the valley and when anybody is bitten by a snake, if they will then look at that copper snake on the pole, they will not die. That's my antidote. And it worked. It was saying, you're still in danger but you have to do something to get out of it. You have to make a response and of course it took faith to do that. They had to believe in it that it would work. They could have said, oh that's silly, that won't cure snake bite. And had they said that, they'd have died. This is everyone who looked, kept their eye on that copper snake. Of course ever since there's been a superstition about wearing copper as you know, it's supposed to cure all sorts of things, copper bracelets and things, that's sheer superstition. Well they had to look and it says when they looked they lived. We'll pick that up later. <laughs> the third crisis came when they got to the plains of Moab. This was the final one. They'd had a number of victories on the way. They'd had a victory over Edom and Moab. They were riding high and they camped overlooking the Jordan, looking across to the Promised Land. I've got a photograph but I think I'll show you that one later. But now they were going to suffer a major defeat. What happened was this, these people living on this side, Ammon, I'm sure you've heard the capital of Jordan is Amman, it's the same word, and the Moabites, they got together and they said, look we can't let these Israelites come in here, we don't want them taking our land. Very similar situation to today actually, we don't want them around. And so they hired a Syrian soothsayer, a man from way up in Damascus, actually he'd lived on the river Euphrates earlier but he was now living in Syria and he was a magician, he was a diviner and he was a big ass and he had one too and his name was Balaam and this is where Balaam comes into the picture because very often in battles in those days as today people prayed to win and often in those days they would bring in a soothsayer or a diviner to curse the enemy and to believe that cursing the enemy would mean they'd defeat them. But same thing happens today, the Russians put on a, a play in Moscow years ago and it showed the uh, Germans and Russians fighting on stage and as the play opened and the curtain went up on the battle scene, 
there was a German chaplain in a box at one side of the stage and a Russian Orthodox priest in a box at the other side of the stage, both praying to God that they would win the battle. It was the Russian cynical way of saying, what's the good of praying in war? But uh, people still do and they seek to get God on their side. And the ancient way of doing it was to get a, a magician to come in and in the name of gods, pagan gods, to curse the other side. Now here we have the most extraordinary story in Numbers. Here is a pagan soothsayer called Balaam and yet they call him in and they ask him to curse the Israelites in the name of the God of Israel. Extraordinary. And he does it. And we know why he does it because uh, he likes money. It's as simple as that. And they kept having to offer him a, a larger fee because each time he tried to curse the Israelis, he blessed them. Every time he opened his mouth to curse them, I bless you, says the God of Israel. And the kings of Ammon and Moab were furious. He said, well, I can't help it. He said, I just try and curse them, but I just find myself blessing them. So they gave him more money and they kept upping it and they kept bringing him nearer to the camp of the Israelis. At first, the first time he tries to curse them, he's a long way off. He can just see them in the distance and gradually he's brought nearer and nearer to see how many there are until finally he's overlooking the camp itself and he tries again. Now he did at one point nearly succeed and that's where the story of the ass comes in or the donkey. And uh, we're told this amazing story that here is Balaam sitting on his donkey going down a narrow road, a track between two stone walls and there are many such in the Middle East, just a little track between two high stone walls and the donkey sees an angel standing in the path and the donkey won't move and Balaam beats the donkey because he can't see and still the donkey won't move and he beats the donkey and beats the donkey and finally the donkey turns around and speaks to Balaam. Now once again there are people who say that is absolutely ridiculous. But of course we've got to remember that animals can be possessed by evil spirits and good spirits. That's surely what was happening in the Garden of Eden. And uh, we know that Jesus sent demons into pigs but uh, a good spirit can use an animal just as well, an angel can use an animal. Make of it what you will. But the animal had more sense than Balaam. That's the message that very clearly comes through. The animal was more sensitive. Sometimes animals can be more sensitive to things that are happening than human beings. But it really puts Balaam down at the bottom, below his donkey. It's a sad story because of the sequel. You must read all about it but in fact Balaam finally hit on the way of getting the money from the kings of Ammon and Moab. He said, look, trying to curse them is no use. The Lord just twists my words or he stops me getting anywhere near them. I can't do that. But he said, I can tell you a way to get in among them and this is very significant. Oh, they said, how? He said, send some of your pretty girls into the camp. That's all deadly. They said, oh no, that's, that's good thinking and they gave him lots of money now. And the girls came in and it, it's really too sordid a story to dwell on. In fact, 
One man in the Israelite camp is commended by God because he actually stuck a spear right through a couple having intercourse at the door of the tabernacle. They were fornicating in God's tempt. And this Israelite was so horrified that he pinned them both to the ground with a spear. But he was the only one who resisted the temptations that came. And so that's how they suffered their third major defeat. And Balaam is to blame for it in a sense, but the man who pinned that couple to the ground with a spear was called Phinehas. And forever afterwards, he was given a perpetual priesthood for himself and his family. The only man to defend God's house against what was happening in God's sight. Important lesson to learn. You see, if they were going to go into the promised land, one of the worst features in the promised land was the immorality of it. There were fertility goddesses. There were horrible statues and phallic symbols. They've just put up an eight-foot-high phallic symbol in the high street in Basingstoke. It's coming back. It's all coming back, the whole fertility cult thing with its immorality. And here they were before they went into the land, faced with it, and they, they fell. So it's serious, isn't it? And uh, they had to learn, and God taught them a lesson. Well, now what can we learn from all this? Written for the Jews, of course, for later generations that they might learn to fear God, and therefore written for Christians, I believe, that we might learn from their failures. In the little letter of Jude, who was Jesus' younger brother, we have mention of both Korah and Balaam. We have many mentions in the New Testament of don't grumble. It was as big a problem in the early church as it was in Israel. It's called a bitter root, a root of bitterness that can grow inside a fellowship when people grumble and complain. Of course, nowadays they usually move on to another fellowship, but boy, if you start a new fellowship with complainers from another fellowship, you're going to be in trouble. You deserve everything you get. If you start a new fellowship, start it with new Christians. Don't build with second-hand bricks. Well, they could live and die in the wilderness. We are more important to God. We're not numbers, we're names. We're not just on his census. He knows how many hairs there are on our head. When I look at the book of Numbers, I'm first impressed with what this book says about God. There are two sides to God's character and Paul draws them out when he says, Behold then the goodness and the severity of God. And nowadays we hear so much about the goodness of God and so little about the severity of God that we are getting an unbalanced, anemic view of God who is more a mother than a father or even a grandmother, to quote one bishop. I'm serious about that. And God is a father and therefore there is severity as well as goodness. There is discipline as well as delight. And we need to get this balance right. So in the book of Proverbs we have his goodness in his provision, in his protection, in his preservation of them. We also have his severity in discipline, disinheritance, disgrace and even death. We need to remember them both. We deal with the same God and the fear of God doesn't disappear from the New Testament. It's there with the love of God. What does the book of Numbers say about Jesus? An awful lot. 
Jesus was forty days in the wilderness being tempted. He went through this himself. He is the bread from heaven. You all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But do you know the verse just ahead of that? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's straight out of the book of Numbers. You can find Jesus everywhere in the Bible if you look for, for him. Hebrews says, If the ashes of a heifer could bring forgiveness, how much more the blood of Christ? That's a reference. But the most amazing thing is Balaam again. Balaam made a prophecy and this was the prophecy, I see him but not now, I behold him but not near, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will arise out of Israel and from then on every devout Jew looked for the star of the king to come and that's what led the wise men to Bethlehem. Isn't that amazing? It was Balaam's prophecy that brought the wise men to Bethlehem. I have two more minutes. So what's the best known verse in Numbers? Well, there's no question in my mind. It's chapter 6 verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. That's the blessing that God gave Aaron to give to the people when they set off from camp on the next part of their journey. It has every mark of direct inspiration from God because it is mathematically perfect, as Genesis 1 is incidentally. Whenever God speaks, his language is mathematically perfect. Listen to this, in the Hebrew of course, not the English, in the Hebrew, there are three lines in that. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. The words in the Hebrew, three words in the first sentence, five in the second, seven in the third. The letters in the Hebrew, 15 in the first, 20 in the second, 25 in the third. The syllables in the Hebrew, 12 in the first, 14 in the second, 16 in the third. And if you take the word Lord out, you are left with 12 Hebrew words. So you've got the Lord and the twelve tribes. And I could go on. It is mathematically perfect. And it builds up, even in English, there's a kind of crescendo, isn't there? You feel it. And each line has two verbs and the second expands the first. And blessing, of course, means that the children, property, land, health, safety, they would be protected and provided for. And the Lord is, of course, Yahweh, but it's now Jesus. And the two things the blessing offers are grace and peace, which of course is the Christian blessing in every epistle in the New Testament, grace and peace to you. And of course the word Lord comes three times in the Old Testament, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you, the Lord be gracious to you, Lord, 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 Father, Son and Holy Spirit to us. The whole thing is, I could go on but my time is gone, mathematically that blessing is the most beautiful mathematical formula and so is Genesis 1. You find that God speaks mathematically, which means musically, because music is based on maths. And here we have this beautiful musical 
mathematical blessing. So as we finish this talk and you go on your way, I just want to say the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his shalom. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.